I invite you all to take your Bible or a Bible from underneath the pew in front of you and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And we're going to pick up where we left off about five weeks ago and press on with our attempt to understand this great book of Hebrews and let God speak to us through it. And we're at chapter 3 now, and today we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 under the title, Jesus, Worthy of More Glory Than Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, He is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Father in heaven, I pray now that you'd help me to speak the truth concerning this text and to apply it to the hearts and minds of your people. And I pray for those here who love your word and trust it, that you would open them and empower them and bless them and purify them and heal them and strengthen them and delight them in this truth And for those who do not trust your word and are not sure at all that they believe what is being spoken in this hour, I simply ask that you would work so as to open them to truth and to a serious consideration of Jesus Christ this morning. And in that, draw them to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings have two huge Needs that put everything else in their lives in the shadow. Everybody in this room has two basic needs. Number one, we need a word from God. And number two, we need a way to God. We need to hear from Him and we need to get to Him. We need to hear from Him so that we can know what He's like. And so that we can know what his purposes are in the world. And so that we can know what he requires of us. And so we need a word from God. Some authoritative, clear, understandable revelation from God. We need that. Without that, we're totally in the dark as to who we are and who he is and what we should do with life. And we need a a way to him. Because if we get alienated from him, if we can't find a way home to God out of our guiltiness that all of us feel, 
There's nobody in this room who feels like you've measured up to your own standards, let alone to God's standards. Unless we find a way home through our guilt to God, we spend eternity in darkness and death and torment. And so we've got two big needs. We need a word from God and we need a way to God. We need a revelation from God and we need reconciliation with God. And everybody in this room knows that. I'm just drawing to your attention a very deep and profound and obvious truth. Now, verse 1 of this text addresses these two needs in some really remarkable ways, several ways. Let's read it again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, let's take that phrase, heavenly calling, first. We Christians are sharers in or partakers of a heavenly calling. Think about those two words now. Heavenly, meaning it is a calling coming from heaven, from God. And it's a calling, meaning it is summoning us to heaven and to God. So in that very phrase, you have both needs addressed. We need a word from God, from heaven, and we need a way to God. And this text says, we are participants in a heavenly calling. Something has come from heaven. It is calling us back to heaven. And we are participants in it. So we have a heavenly calling. There has been a word that has descent and it's descended and it's not a word that leaves us here. It calls us home. It makes a way home. And we have a tremendous hope built on that heavenly calling. And that hope as we're going to see, is not resting on ourselves. What are you hoping in this morning? That's a question we're going to end with this morning. There are sexual sinners in this room. There are lying sinners in this room. There are parent disobeying sinners in this room. There are killing sinners in this room. There are greedy and covetous sinners in this room. There are boastful and proud sinners in this room and fearful and anxious sinners in this room. And there is nobody else in this room. And therefore, none of us is going to make it to God unless this heavenly Calling can do that unless it not only comes from heaven, but takes us to heaven. Unless it is meeting the first need as a word from God, explaining who he is, who we are, what's the relationship, how can it be made right, and can help in making it right and getting us out of this awful predicament of sin into reconciliation with God. And having said that we are partakers of that, this writer says now, 
consider Jesus. Do you see that? Don't miss those two words. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's what we're doing right now. That's what my life is about. I live to help people consider Jesus. That's all I want to do is live to help people consider the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And Jesus is God. We'll see that before we're done with this text. I'm calling you right now for the next 15, 20 minutes to consider Jesus. That's what all of our Sunday school program is about. If we are not calling people to consider God in Christ, then let's just close up shop. That's what all small group ministry at this church is about. Helping one another consider Jesus. Next week, we move from verse 6 on through the end of this chapter. We'll spend two weeks on that text. And it's all about the one another helping of each other consider Jesus. So these two words here are the point of Hebrews. We've seen them two or three times already in chapters 1 and 2. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, namely Jesus. You have heard that in many and various ways God has spoken to us by the prophets. In these last days, he spoke to us by a son. We must pay close attention to the word Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, lest we drift away from it. I think that phrase, consider Jesus, might be in some of your minds as something you say to unbelievers. If you're dealing with somebody whose life is disconnected from God and they're groping here and there for something to latch on to, what can bring significance and meaning into life and provide hope and overcome problems, You say to them, would you consider Jesus? But this book is written to Christians, and it says to us this morning, consider Jesus. And you might ask, why? Isn't the very meaning of being a Christian that we automatically consider Jesus? He's Lord and Savior of our lives. And the answer is no, it isn't automatic. Again and again and again and again in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, Christians are pleaded with, consider Jesus. Very simple reason that we just read, lest we drift away from it. Vacation is a dangerous time for John Piper. Because I don't have to prepare sermons. I don't have to be as vigilant over my spiritual walk. I don't have to think about being up and alive and true and authentic, I can just kind of drift. And it makes me think, well, maybe that's the way real life is. Most people don't have the privilege of having to prepare messages and be a Christian leader. They can just drift. It's a dangerous time for all of us. And therefore, he says, consider Jesus. Now, why Jesus? Having just said that we are partakers of a heavenly calling, that addresses the two needs of needing a word from God and a way to God, why consider Jesus? And the answer is given in the next two descriptions of the Lord himself in this verse. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now he's called two things. The apostle, that's one, and the high priest, Of our confession. 
Those two names of Jesus correspond exactly to the two needs that you and I have this morning. We need a word from God and we need a way to God. Now, what does apostle mean? Apostle means sent one. Jesus is God's apostle from heaven to earth with a heavenly calling. So he has come and he is the word that we need. You need a word from God this morning. Jesus is the word from God to you this morning. He is it and he speaks it. He's your apostle from God. We have earthly apostles who represent Jesus to the nations. And we have a heavenly apostle who represents God to earth with the word. And that's Jesus Christ. So he corresponds and is the answer to our need number one. I need a word from God. Jesus is the word from God. And then he's called the high priest. What is a high priest in the Old Testament? This is all in the Old Testament context. A high priest is one who is a go-between, between God and the people, who offers sacrifices to appease the wrath of a holy God and reconcile God with a sinful people so that there can be friendship instead of enmity. That's the way home to God. We need a word from God. That's Jesus, our apostle. We need a way to God. Overcoming our sin, and that's Jesus, the high priest, who offered the sacrifice of himself to appease the wrath of God, express the love of God, and fill us with the joy of God forever and ever so that we could be friends and not enemies anymore. So the reason, this writer says, consider Jesus. If you have a need for a word, if you have a need for a way home, consider Jesus, because he brought the heavenly calling And he will make the heavenly calling effective through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the answer to our two fundamental needs. And so consider him. This book of Hebrews is one great, glorious consideration of Jesus. Consider Jesus. There is more about Jesus than you could ever consider in all of your life. You will never exhaust Jesus. So when I say consider Jesus, I mean keep on doing it until you die. And then you'll start again and you'll keep considering Jesus forever. And you will never run out of something new and fresh and glorious to consider about Jesus. In chapter 1, he was superior to angels. He made the world. Angels just run errands in the world. Chapter 1, verse 14. In chapter 2, his Superiority was shown in the way he fulfills Psalm 8. Oh God, you have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed over him, him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That was originally spoken to you and me. And Jesus does it and catches the new humanity in himself up into it so that just as he now has rule over the world, we will one day join him in that rule. And Psalm 8 will be fulfilled in us, in him. Now we ask, for today's text, what should we consider about Jesus by way of his superiority? And the answer is, he's superior to Moses. Let's look at this briefly. He is superior to Moses. Two ways. 
in verses 2 through 6. But it's not the raw superiority, it's what we learn about him in comparing and contrasting him with Moses. Verse 2 is the introduction to the difference between Moses and Jesus, and it introduces the difference by saying they're the same in one important respect. It says, Jesus was faithful to him, to God the Father, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So he begins by saying Moses was faithful, Jesus was faithful as they deal with the people, the house of God. So his point is not to put Moses down. This is not a put down for Moses in this text. In fact, this is a quotation. This verse 2 is a quotation from Numbers 12. Let me read you that passage. Number 12, 6. Hear now my word, says the Lord. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses was in a class by himself among the prophets. God said, I deal with prophets in dark sayings, visions, and dreams. I deal with Moses mouth to mouth, face to face. Now, consider Jesus in relation to this one-of-a-kind Moses. That's the point here. This is not a put-down for Moses. This is an elevation for Moses and then a super-elevation for Jesus above Moses. So let's let's look at the two superiorities of Jesus over Moses. The first one is in verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, glory in the 20th century, in 1996, two weeks into the Olympics, is not a foreign word. Gold is more glorious than silver. Silver is more glorious than bronze. Bronze is more glorious than fourth place. And everybody knows what we're talking about. Glory. Or... If you don't get the gold and you're injured and you do something phenomenal anyway, you get more glory than if you had gold. And everybody knows what glory is. This is not a foreign language, even though it's very biblical and awesome. We know what glory is. We know what it is when a person is worth more glory than another. You watch the athletes and when they're done and they're interviewing and one says... Well, I know is to God be the glory. And the other says, well, we came out and gave our best, blah, 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 blah. You know, there's different qualities of humility. There's different qualities of receptivity in all of this. And you ascribe more glory to the humble athlete who powerfully, meekly, triumphantly wins than the arrogant athlete that pumps and pushes and talks about himself or herself. 
We know what glory is and we know what superior glory is. We know what it is to ascribe glory, to be admiring and praising of an athlete. My son Ben is in Georgia and through an amazing set of circumstances, because he works for a German company, has been to the three final soccer games, including the goal. I couldn't believe it. Because he was the captain of his soccer team at Roseville. I said, what a gift! He didn't pay a dime for these things. And we were on the phone with him the other night, and you can imagine, he said he was sitting near some Nigerians. Nigeria won the goal, did you know that? Um, and he said... To be sitting around these guys and watch them rise, first against Brazil, I think, and then against Argentina, was to learn what praise is all about. <laughs> so we, we know you don't have to go to school to learn what glory is. You don't have to go to school to learn what increased and superior glory is. And you don't have to go to school to learn how to praise and ascribe glory to somebody. We know it's written on our hearts to praise glory. And this text says, Jesus is more glorious than Moses. And then it gives an amazing reason. He is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Now, do you get that? Here's, here's what he's saying. Jesus compares to the builder of the house. Moses compares to the house. He's part of the body. He's part of the people of God. He's part of the household of God. Therefore, Jesus is more glorious than Moses in the same way that a builder is superior to a house because he made the house. Jesus made Moses. That's why he's superior. He created Moses. So here I picture the decathlon contestants. And they're all sitting in a room. Jesus is one of them. It's not fair, I know, but just go with me for a minute. He's sitting in a room. He's got on his burgundy sweats over in the corner. And they're all saying, I threw the javelin farther than anybody, and so I'm the greatest. And the next one says, I put the shot farther than anybody, so I'm the greatest. And the next one says, I jumped higher than anybody, so I'm the greatest. And then it gets quiet. And he's just sitting there. And they all look over and say, well, what, what about you? What are you thinking? And he said, I made all of you, so I'm the greatest. <laughs> Which is exactly right. It's just exactly, I mean, that is just, that's not a metaphor. That's not an analogy. That's just fact. Jesus is superior to Moses because he made Moses. He's superior to legs and arms and minds and hearts because he made them. Sure, he could have jumped higher and run faster and thrown farther, but that would only make him quantitatively superior. Jesus is 
qualitatively superior because he made the Olympic athletes. He made Atlanta, Georgia. He made the world. That's, we learned all that in chapter one. This author can't get over this. So point number one, we only have two and the second one is shorter and I move to it now. He is superior to Moses in that he made Moses. He is the builder of the house. Moses is part of the house. Therefore, he's the builder of Moses. Therefore, he's infinitely superior to this wonderful man named Moses. And he's superior to you and me as well. We have an apostle who is amazing. Verse 4 makes something explicit that you might draw out for yourself. It says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You get that? What's he saying? Jesus, verse 3 says, Jesus built the house. Verse 4 says, The builder of all things is God. This is a syllogism, folks. Premise 1. Jesus built the house. Premise two, God builds all things. What's the conclusion? Tell me. Jesus is God. We saw it in chapter one. And we see it here. We'll see it again. The book of Hebrews has a high view of Jesus. In former times, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these latter times, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. That's chapter one, verse one. Second superiority, very briefly, verses five and six. Now Moses was faithful, there's verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. So here the contrast is different. Here Moses is pictured as a servant in the house, and Jesus is pictured as a son over the house. Now what's the difference between a servant and a son? Well, by inheritance, the son owns the house, The son is Lord over the house and the son provides out of his wealth for all those people in the house. And Moses doesn't do any of that. He doesn't own the house. He's part of the house. He's not Lord over the house. He follows the master of the house. He doesn't provide for the house. He depends upon the riches of the house for his daily provisions. And so Jesus is superior to Moses as the son over a house is superior to a servant in the house. So consider Jesus. Now, I close with this, and this is amazing how this text is structured because my sermon comes to an end here and this text comes to an end at the end of verse 6 in exactly the way I would want it to come to an end as a preacher. Notice how the writer at the end of verse 6 takes all this glorious truth about the superiority of Jesus as the maker of Moses, the owner of Moses, the Lord of Moses, the provider of Moses, and the creator of you, the owner of you, the Lord of you, the provider for you. And in the last half of verse 6, 
He turns our attention totally away from the people of Israel, which he had been talking about in this house that Moses served, and totally away from the apostolic age in which the apostles had received the word. And now he says, whose house we are. Now, he's addressing a third generation church here. We know that from chapter 2. This is not Jesus. This is not the apostles. This is a third generation. And he says, we. And by implication, 30 generations later, we say, we. Right? I hope you say we with me now. Whose house we at Bethlehem are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. You are the house of God this morning. If you are holding fast to your confidence in God and to your hope in God, and if you are the house of God, then God, through Christ, is your maker, your owner, your Lord, and your provider. He will watch over his house. His eye will be upon his house. He loves his house. No son ever takes a vacation and says, I don't care what becomes of my house. He's vigilant over his house. God will care for us if we are his house. And this text says, if we hold fast. So what we're reading here in this last phrase is the evidence that you are a participant in the heavenly calling. How can you know if you are a partaker of the heavenly calling this morning? And the answer is not, I walked the aisle one time, or I prayed a prayer when I was six, like I did. That's not the answer. To know that you are a participant in the heavenly calling, that you are part of the house of God, which he has made and which he owns and which he leads and which he loves and provides for. To know that, you ask the question right now about your hope. Do you this morning hope in money? Do you hope in advancing in the business? Do you put your hope in luck? Do you put your hope in clever investments in the stock market as it heads towards 6,000? Oh, maybe it'll go to 6,000 and I'll be just poised to have my future secured and I can have all the things I've always wanted. If so, change. Becoming a Christian and being a Christian happen exactly the same way. Being a Christian and becoming a Christian happen by hoping in Jesus. Do you put your confidence in Jesus? That makes you a Christian, that keeps you a Christian. Do you exalt and boast in the hope that Jesus is as the apostle and high priest of your heavenly calling? Or do you constantly try to prop yourself up with human means of hope and security? If you hope in Jesus, you are being a Christian. 